Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Risch. Thoughts on the Roman Epistle, Chapters 1 to 8. By James Boyd. Romans Chapter 8. With this statement the 8th chapter opens, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There was nothing but condemnation to me when in the flesh as a child of Adam. But in Christ I am beyond the reach of condemnation. I am in a new head, a righteous head, and he is righteousness to me, and holiness, and redemption, and all I need. In him my standing is perfect, my practical state may not be everything I would wish, but the better I apprehend my place before God in Christ, the better will I be able to come out in the fulfillment of my obligations before men. In Christ I have reached a spot inviolate from sin, death, and condemnation. It is not a question of my apprehension of the blessedness of the place, nor even of the place itself, if I have the Holy Spirit I am in Christ. Whether I understand the doctrine of, in Christ, or whether I do not, and I am beyond the reach of condemnation. It is new creation in Christ, but this scripture does not use the term to convey the truth of new creation to our minds, it is simply that in Christ there is no condemnation. It is on a line with what we have brought before us in the latter part of chapter 5, the blessedness of being in connection with the new and righteous head. It is a very sweeping statement, and we do well to allow it to have its full force upon our minds and hearts. It brings a sense of security and of peace to the soul that nothing else can. If we, on our side, are to be in the full benefit of it, we must learn the doctrine of it, but, thank God, the truth, and reality. And security involved in the expression does not depend upon our apprehension of the doctrine, but upon the fact of our having believed the gospel, and of having been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The latter part of verse 1 had better be left out, its right to be there has been called in question. If it is to be read there at all, it must be read as giving character to them that are in Christ, not as conditional. It is in its rightful place in verse 4. How good it is to be in Christ, and to know that we are there. It is the result of the intervention of God on our behalf, and it speaks peace to our troubled souls. In Adam, or in the flesh, which is the same thing, we were slaves of sin, under death and condemnation, bad trees bringing forth corrupt fruit, the fountain of our life impure, and therefore sending forth polluted water. Our nature rebellious against the authority of God, and in our minds his enemies, and even when the mind was renewed through his grace to us, and therefore, having a desire to please him, utterly unable to do so. Because of the incorrigible badness of the flesh, our sinful nature, inherited from Adam. But now in Christ Jesus, and in the enjoyment of the love of God, for all the love of God is in Christ, and is the portion of every heart that is his. The law of the spirit of his life has made me free from the law of sin and death. The fountain of my life does not now lie in the flesh. I have got a springing well within, that springs up into everlasting life. It was what the Lord proposed to do for the woman at the well of succor. He told her that whoever drank of the water that he would give would never thirst, for it would be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The flesh is in its nature lust, the new nature is love, the love of God getting into the heart by the Holy Spirit becomes a new fountain of life. And all that flows from it is as pure as the river of God, from which it has its source. But what about the old nature, the flesh with all its uncleanness? It has come under the judgment of the cross of Christ. This we get in verse 3, for what the law could not do. What could it not do? It could not control the flesh and guide it in the right direction, it was unable to make it fulfill its obligations, because the flesh was in its very nature rebellious, obstinate, and uncontrollable. God sending his own Son. There the love of God came to light. His own Son. How wonderful. There is a reason for the Spirit of God speaking in this way. It shows us how dear to the heart of God the deliverance of man was from the dominion of sin, that he might have his creature living to himself in love. 
in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, but in its likeness. It has been remarked that we have innocent flesh in the Garden of Eden before Adam sinned, and after the fall we have sinful flesh, but in Christ only we have holy flesh. He came in our likeness that he might give himself for us. And, by a sacrifice, for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, set aside in the cross that whole condition in which we lived as children of Adam. So that we might no longer live in that condition which was dominated by sin, and out of which no good could be got, for there was no good in it, that we might no longer follow its inclinations nor seek to hold it in check, nor make any attempt to guide it in the way of righteousness, but that we might turn away from it as a condemned and judged thing, and walk after the Spirit, and thus fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. If we walk after the Spirit our hearts are kept in the sense of the love of God, and this fountain of living water wells up in our hearts in love to God and in love to our neighbor, and thus the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. We serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. If we love God with all our heart we are certain to keep the first table of the law, and if we love our neighbor we will keep the second table of the law. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans chapter 13 verse 10. But this involves walking after the Spirit. No condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus is independent of walk, it is the position in which God has set us in the last Adam, and is not affected by our practical conduct. Thank God it is not. It would be a very uncertain kind of salvation if it were. The salvation that is in Christ Jesus is worthy of God. But if we are to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law we must be careful to walk after the Spirit, but this is our happy privilege. If we know the evil of the flesh, and that there is no mending it, we are not likely to trust it, we will expect everything from our union with Christ. We will walk in the refusal of the will of the flesh, we will draw all our resources from Him. I need hardly say that this involves constant dependence upon God, and constant watchfulness over self. There is no such thing as arriving at a state of sinless perfection in which I shall have no more need of watchfulness against its attack. Sin is still in the believer. The old nature is unchanged. It has been condemned in the cross, and set aside in the judgment that was executed there, and the believer is in the life of the risen Christ. But as long as he is down here the flesh is in him, and ready to assert its will at any moment, and therefore we need ever to be on our guard. And we need to walk carefully and in dependence upon God, or we are sure to fall. We are in an evil world, and we carry about with us an evil nature which answers to all the evil of the world around us, and therefore we require to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. I fear that many true believers are looking for a deliverance from sin which would amount to the removal of indwelling sin, or a sort of purification of the flesh, that would make them incapable of committing sin. Hence they are forever disappointed with themselves, and very miserable, or else their estimate of sin sinks to the level of the breach of a given commandment. What is needful is to see that Christ has on the cross not only died for my sins, but has died for the nature that committed the sins, and that we are in Christ and quickened with him in his life, and that in him, and in him only, we are in relationship with God, and that though the flesh be in us, we are not in it in our relationship with him. As born of the flesh we were after the flesh, and minded the things of the flesh, we could not mind anything else, we acted according to our nature, and nothing but sin resulted. And this called for death as the judgment of God. The mind of the flesh is enmity against God, it will not have him in any character in which he may present himself. It is an awful thought to contemplate. How terrible to come to the discovery that my natural mind must be ever antagonistic to God. It is not subject to his law, nor can it be made subject. It is always rebellious. It has been well proven, and it will neither have God nor his rule. Hence they that are in the flesh cannot please him. It is all over with that order of man.
but as born of the Spirit we are, after the Spirit, and we naturally mind the things of the Spirit. This is just as true as they that are, after the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. As born of the Spirit we have a new nature, new desires, and a new order of things comes before our vision, and the result of minding the things of the Spirit is that the will of God is done. Righteousness is produced. Of course the Spirit is the power by which righteousness is produced. The new nature, that which is born of the Spirit, has no power in itself, but the Holy Spirit empowers the new nature that is produced by his operation, and enables us to carry out the desires of the new nature, and the effect of this is life and peace. We sow to the Spirit, and reap life everlasting. When walking in the flesh it is continual rebellion against the authority of God, the mind is in a constant state of revolt, the conscience accusing, and the heart vacant. Ill at ease and hankering after that which can never satisfy it, God is at a distance from the soul, and the very remembrance of his love, that is not now enjoyed, adds to the deep misery that is only known to those who have experienced it. But in walking after the Spirit the heart is kept in the light and warmth of that heavenly love, the believer's thoughts are diverted from himself and fixed upon the Son of God. The glory of God is bright before the eye, earth with its clouds and darkness is out of sight, and the feet press on toward the heavenly goal, the pathway teems with life and peace rests upon the mind and heart. It is not only peace with God, which is the effect of being justified by faith, but the conscience is quiet, and the heart is happy, and satisfied with divine favor. And in the consciousness of that favor there is no fear in the soul, or apprehension of coming evil. It is a great calm, but not the calm of death with all the springs of the moral being stupefied with sin, but it is the calm of life that has its source in God. Known in his infinite and changeless love, it is the calm that is found in walking after his commandments, and in the exercise of divine affections may both writer and reader know the blessedness of walking after the Spirit. In verse 1, we are told that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The believer is placed where no condemnation can reach him. Then in verse 2, we have the Spirit of the life that is in Christ Jesus. This sets us free from the law of sin and death. It is a new fountain of life in us, and flows in the direction of the will of God. But when we come to verse 9 it is the principle of our relationship with God, ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, it is not quite not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, but, rather, not in flesh, but in Spirit. It is not the Holy Spirit personally, but rather the life of Christ, the springing well, as we get in verse 2, and also in John chapter 4 and John chapter 20. It could not be without the Spirit personally, hence we get, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. As I have said above, we are born of the Spirit, and he, when we believe the Gospel, unites himself with that which is of himself in us, and gives power to it, so that we are in spirit in our relationships with God. We are not in flesh before God. And this Spirit, being the Spirit of the life that is in Christ Jesus, gives us to come out in his moral characteristics, and had we not this Spirit we would not be of him. For that which is of him must bear his moral features. What rest, and peace, and joy, and happiness the knowledge of this brings to our hearts we are in Christ, we have his spirit, we are in his life, his life is our life. It is a life of obedience and of holy love, as in it we are in relationship with God, and as to the flesh, the cross has been the end of that before God. And this being so, it is Christ that is in us, for if it be his spirit and his life, it is himself. And without this we would be nothing, and our profession of Christianity would be the veriest sham. None of his, is what is true of all who have not his spirit. But if Christ be in us, giving character to our ways in passing through this world, the body, looked at as energized by its own will, is dead. Were the cross not brought to bear upon its will, sin would result from all its activities. A new power of life has come in with the gift of the spirit, and, acting by his power, righteousness is produced.
it is the Spirit of Christ, that which gave character to him in his pathway through the world, that is now to be the power by which we tread the same pathway of righteousness, holiness, and love. This is, newness of life, and under the eye of the Father, as the life of Christ was. That life, that was so pleasing to the eye of the Father, is reproduced in his people down here. How encouraging it is to the heart to come to the understanding that we are privileged to exhibit in our ways in this world that which is so pleasing to the blessed God, the life of Jesus. What could give greater joy to the delivered soul than the knowledge that he is called to set forth in his mortal body that in which God takes such infinite delight? The thought of the natural heart is that he is hard to please, and neither can they that are in the flesh please him. Nothing can please him but Christ. The history of the race of Adam has been a grief to his heart. But his Son has been here, and has passed through the world to the unbounded satisfaction of the Father, and in Christ we see the only one in whom he can have pleasure. If we are to please him, we must set that holy and righteous one before God in our walk and ways through this lawless world. This only can please him. But we have received his Spirit that Christ might be in us, giving character to us, to the delight of God. How beautiful the word is, if Christ be in you. No longer self and all its hateful history, but Christ for the eye of God to rest upon. The body no longer serving sin, but as regards sin, dead, and righteousness produced in the energy of the spirit. The body is that against which we have to be on our guard. It is our present link with the old creation, which is corrupted by sin. Sin reigned in the mortal body, the will that energized it was antagonistic to God. Living in the life that is natural to us as children of Adam, it is moved by lust and pride and rebellion against God, its will is hostile to the will of God. But a new power has come in. Christ has laid hold of these bodies by his Spirit that they may be for himself, that God may be glorified in them. He has redeemed them by his precious blood, and they are his. We are no longer to live to their lusts, or to magnify ourselves in them, but we are to live to the will of God, and set forth Christ in them. But if this is to be done, we must apply the death of Christ to the will that formerly energized them, so that the new power that has come in may bring forth in him the characteristics of Jesus. In a little while he who has made them his own by his precious blood, and by the sealing of the Spirit, will redeem them by power. He will change them and fashion them like his own body of glory, by the power by which he will subdue everything to himself. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. God, the God of resurrection, raised up his Son Jesus from the dead. That Spirit that carried him through this scene of defilement, untainted by it, to the glory of God, was the guarantee that death would not be able to hold him. It was the Spirit of holiness. The power of his holy life was the power of his resurrection. Now that same power dwells in believers, for we have received the Spirit from the risen Christ, and this being so, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken our mortal bodies by that same Spirit. When it is only a question of God and his Son, it is, him that raised up Jesus, but when others are involved, it is, he that raised up Christ. Jesus is his own personal name. But Christ is the last Adam and head of the redeemed family. The Spirit of the God of Resurrection has taken hold of our bodies and will quicken them at the coming of Christ. What a gift the Spirit of God is. The groundwork of all our blessing is the death of Christ, and he is everything to us in resurrection, but the Spirit is the power of God in us, affecting the purpose of God with regard to our state. Even to the quickening of our mortal bodies. Redeemed by the blood of Christ, and sealed by the Holy Ghost, we only wait that touch of the power of God, by the finger of Christ, to give us our place in the glory along with himself. What a happy people we are. How secure all our blessings are. To God be all the glory. All this being so, it is quite clear we are not debtors to the flesh, to live after it, for if we lived after it, death would result. There is no gain to us in following the lead of the flesh, and living to the gratification of its lusts. 
it can offer nothing that would serve as an inducement to follow its unholy desires. A little momentary excitement will not make up for the loss of the soul. There may be pleasures in sin, but they are but for a short season, and a poor compensation for an eternity of woe. It is well when our eyes are opened to the evil of the flesh, and what the fulfilling of its desires leads to. We cannot be too well assured that we can reap no advantage by giving heed to its inordinate pleadings. It may be hard to convince us that to gratify the hunger of the flesh is to minister destruction to the immortal soul. Nor will we believe it until we have learned by bitter experience what the flesh is in its nature, but when this is learned, deliverance from it will not only be looked for with earnest heart, but that deliverance that has been effected for us through Christ will be immensely appreciated. We expect everything from the Spirit. By Him we are enabled to put to death the deeds of the body, and are glad to do so, for by the Spirit our hearts are kept in the freshness of divine love and our minds are fixed on the things that God has given to them that love him, and to allow our wills to give impulse to our bodies would be to subject us afresh to the service of sin, defile our consciences, and rob us of the enjoyment of our portion in Christ. We cannot go on with both flesh and spirit. It cannot be a little of the flesh here and a little of the spirit there, a little of the things of the world and a little of the things of Christ. We cannot bring the life of Christ into the things of the flesh, neither can we bring the life of flesh into the things of the Spirit of God. It must be the cross for the flesh, from the beginning of our journey through the world right to the very end of it. The Spirit has not been given to us to help the flesh and to make up for its deficiencies, he is against the flesh. And by his power we are to put to death the deeds of the body and live. This is the way in which he leads us. On the one hand he is the power by which we put to death the deeds of the body, and on the other it is by him we cry Abba, Father. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. To be led by law is to be in the place of a bond slave, and this is a spirit of bondage, producing fear, and keeping the soul at a distance from God. It is the spirit the Jew prided himself in, and that which Satan sought to deceive the saints into receiving, or rather the character he sought to give the spirit they had already received. But the apostle lets the Galatians know that they had received the spirit of God's Son in their hearts, which enabled them to enjoy that new and close relationship with God, and gave them the sense that they were no longer in the position of bond slaves. This was the place which was in the purpose of God for us before the world was. In the fullness of time he sent his Son to bring us there. His work on the cross made an end of us as of Adam, for he gave himself for us, to stand in our room and stead, that all that we were as of Adam and in the flesh might be under the eye of God in him who gave himself for us, and that it might be brought to an end in the judgment of that cross. It is all the same as if we ourselves had borne the judgment, and all the same in the judicial mind of God. As if in that judgment that was executed there we had been brought to an actual end as in the flesh. Therefore, when Christ was risen he could speak of the disciples as his brethren, and of his Father as their Father, and of his God as the God. This was their new and eternal place with God. The place that Christ had determined theirs, their place depended upon the place he had. In the old order man's relationship and place with God is in the flesh, it is the place of the fallen head, Adam. But the place of the believer depends upon the last Adam, and the last Adam is the Son of God. But it was not only that the new relationship was made known to the disciples, but he came into their midst and breathed on them, thus communicating to them the spirit of his own life, without which they could have enjoyed nothing of the new sphere into which they had been brought. And we also have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry Abba Father. Adoption in its fullest sense we await, verse 23, and that will involve the redemption of the body. Then we shall be like the Son of God, and with him in the place that belongs to sons, the Father's house. Divine love will never rest until it brings us there.
But now we have the spirit of adoption, which enables us to take our place as sons in the presence of God, and to feel at home there, knowing that the Father loves to have us there. That it is a greater joy to his heart to see us take up our place before his face than it is to ours to take the place, however great our joy may be. We must keep in mind that the place of sons was not given to us in answer to any desire in our hearts, but it was his own eternal thought to have us as sons before his face. Even when we became exercised about our sins, and the judgment to which we were exposed on account of them, it did not occur to us that more than forgiveness would be extended to us, nor did we desire more. The position of a hired servant, a lone place within his door, was the height of our expectation. It was not love to God that attracted us to him. Had we not heard of his grace, we had never come, but we came because it would have been death to us to have remained away. But he first loved us. How hard it is for us to believe this. But the witness of it is the death of his son. Though we may be long in learning it, we were in his thoughts before the world was, and that we should be sons with his son was what he had in view for us. It was all to satisfy his own heart, for, as I have said, we had no wish for such a place, even when we turned to him through the preaching of the gospel. And even now that he has made known his mind toward us, we are very slow to enter into possession of this great privilege. Yet it is true that he thought of us individually before the earth's foundation, thought of you, my reader, if you have believed on his beloved Son. And in his counsels you had your place given to you along with that Son in heavenly glory. You may think yourself very unworthy, but you had better not think of yourself at all, think only of him and of his unspeakable love. When in the grace of God we have been brought to see ourselves as sinners needing mercy, and have believed in that mercy, as it has been shown us in Christ, and when we know that Christ, in the mighty love of God, has borne the judgment of our sins, and has set us in righteousness before the face of God. And when that love that has come to light in the death that Christ died for us is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, we are able to view things apart from their bearing upon ourselves, and as taught by the Spirit we get a right estimate of everything and in the divine nature feel the ruin in which man is as Christ himself felt it. This causes intense suffering, takes the glamour off the elusive world, turns the garden of man's pleasures into the slaughterhouse of his immortal soul, and makes the lowly follower of Christ like his master, a man of sorrows. The inward joy of his heart may be, and is, unspeakable, but it springs not from earth, nor from the things in which the worldling finds his happiness, but it has its source in the love of God and in the knowledge that there is one at the right hand of God who will bring the woes of creation to an end, and fill heaven and earth with righteousness, peace and eternal joy. Peter says to those to whom he writes, Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. For this day when the glory of God will burst upon our vision we wait. It will be a morning without clouds, and it will usher in a day of everlasting sunshine. The wilderness with its dangers, drought, and death will be left behind, and the Father's house with its peace and joy and pure delight will be our home and rest forever. And above all we will be with Jesus in that home, and like him too, to the delight of his and the Father's heart. And there to behold his glory, that glory that is peculiarly his own, and which not even his bride, the beloved object of his heart, and for whom he gave himself, can share with him. But we shall see it, and the sight of it will make our already full cup of unspeakable delight overflow with rapture and worship and adoration. We shall be with the Father also, and never were children so much at home with any father as we shall be with ours, for never was love so great as his. And never was there such a home of love as that home shall be. We shall see his face without a veil. That home no human tongue can describe. The human heart can now entertain its glorious light, and count the sufferings of the present time unworthy to be compared with such boundless joys.
but the blessedness of those same thronged courts is beyond the power of mortal to portray. This is the glory that shall be revealed to us. But there is a glory the creation waits for, the glory of the children of God. This will come to light when the sons of God are manifested. The creation fell with its head Adam. He is the one who subjected it to vanity. But God had his eye upon everything, and the fall of man did not take him by surprise. He allowed it to take place that by it his counsels of love might be fulfilled. If the creation fell under one head, he knew how to recover it under another. But this involved bringing the children of God home to heaven, and gathering them as sons into the Father's house, and not only this, but it also involved their manifestation. The last Adam, in the day of his glory, must not be without his bride. The fall and ruin of the creation was not without the bride of the first Adam, neither will the recovery be without the bride of the last Adam. The eve of the first Adam was prominent in the fall, and the eve of the last Adam will be prominent in recovery. Therefore the whole creation waits the manifestation of the sons of God. In contrast with this we wait the redemption of the body. The body links us at present with the groaning creation, and we who have the first fruits of the Spirit wait for the adoption of the redemption of our body. We wait to go in, the creation waits until we come out. Our groaning will cease at the rapture, when we are taken up. The groans of creation will cease when Christ appears and all the sons of God with him. Until that day comes the creation must go on groaning. Men may seek to alleviate its woes by legislation and in various ways, but the creation expects nothing from earth in the way of deliverance, this will come from heaven at the manifestation of the sons of God. In hope of this glory and blessedness when creation shall enter the rest of God we have been saved. We read in Genesis that when the six days work of creation was over God rested, but into that rest the creature never entered. Sin came in at once and toil and sorrow and sore travail became the lot of the creature, and this must continue until we enter the rest of God upon the ground of redemption. This rest will be glory, the glory of redemption, which when it comes will see the heart of creation warmed into life and joy with the love of God, for he will rest in his love. It has not yet come into display, but it will come, and in hope of it we have been saved, and in patience wait for it. The blessing cannot reach the groaning creature until we appear with Christ, and this involves our going in first of all that we may be made ready to come out. We are quite ready to go in, for we have been washed in the blood of Jesus, and we have received a new and divine nature which fits us for the enjoyment of this holy scene. We only wait a change of body, and that we will have when Christ comes to take us to be with himself. Before we are ready to come out there must be the manifestation of every one of us before the judgment seat, where each one will receive for the deeds done in the body and when each will be appointed to his own particular place in the kingdom, one to rule over ten cities and another over five, Luke chapter 19, and another over all that he has, Luke chapter 12 verse 24. Also there is to be the robing with fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of the saints, Revelation chapter 19 verse 8. Then Christ will be manifested along with all his glorified companions. The heavens will be opened and the whole universe will witness his glorious advent. All the angels of God will be called to do him homage. His enemies will perish from before his face, and the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. The heavens will then declare his glory, and the firmament his handiwork. Day will utter speech unto day, and night unto night will teach knowledge. In him will be placed a tabernacle, the holy city, for the Son, Christ, who will go forth as a bridegroom from his chamber, and as a strong man to run a race. His going forth in blessing will be from the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the end of it, and from its heat, the love of God, nothing will be hid. Then also the law of the Lord will go out, more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey, Psalm chapter 19.
For this day of glory we wait in this groaning creation with which we are still connected by our bodies. And the pressure may be so great and our understanding so limited that we know not what to ask for as we ought. But it is just here that the Spirit comes to our aid, and makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. How infinite are our resources! How perfect is the provision made for us, so that we may not be overcome and crushed and swallowed up by the surrounding evil. Without this provision we never could get through dreadful circumstances that seem sometimes to close us in on every side, and from which we see no way of escape. A groan is all that escapes from our hearts as we go into the presence of God, but the Spirit gives intelligent voice to that groan in the ear of God. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for saints according to God. Well may we praise God for the great gift he has given to us. He has given his Son for us, and he has given his Spirit to us, and what else is needed that we may arrive safely at the rest of God. Christ makes intercession for us before the face of God in heaven, and the Spirit makes intercession for us in ourselves here upon earth, and the intercession of both Christ and the Spirit is according to God. But if we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, we do know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. If God has called you and me by his grace he had something in view in doing so. It was not merely that he felt compassion for us, and showed mercy to us in saving our souls. But in our salvation he had something in view for us that was the subject of his counsels before the world was, for whom he has foreknown, he has also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he should be the firstborn among many brethren. It has all been for the glory of his beloved Son. His companions are all to be like him. He will be anointed with the oil of gladness above them, and they will delight in seeing him supreme in the universe, for in all things he must have the pre-eminence. But they will have the delight in him, only his delight in him will be infinitely greater than theirs in him. For their sakes he has gone lower than all their lost condition, and thus has shown himself pre-eminent in love, and to see him glorified will be to them supreme delight. This is what is before us, and to which the love and grace and power of God combined will bring us. For whom he has predestinated these he has also called. Man purposes, but often finds himself unable to carry out that which he has purposed. Not so God. He is able to give effect to every thought of his heart. We may have preferred to listen to the voice of the tempter rather than to the voice of God in the gospel of his Son, but he knew how to make us willing to hear his voice. He called us, and we came, glad to confess the voice divine and whom he called he justified. Our sinful condition was no barrier to his grace. On the ground of the blood of Jesus he has been able to justify us righteously. And whom he has justified, them also he has glorified. When God takes up any work it is as good as done. He calls those things that be not as though they were. Romans chapter 4 verse 17. This passage looks at everything from the standpoint of divine counsel. All those whom he has predestinated have not yet been called, possibly not yet born into the world, but the names are in the book of life, as called, justified and glorified. Nothing can hinder the carrying out of those counsels of love. Satan, sin, death, judgment, the evil of the flesh, and the host of wickedness in the heavenlies may be all arrayed against those great thoughts of God. But not only are they powerless to hinder the blessed God arriving at the end he has in view, but they are made to serve to the accomplishing of that end. God has made every evil thing serve his purpose. It has been often remarked that the greatest sin the world ever committed has resulted in the greatest blessing. What greater sin was ever committed in the sight of the universe than the murder of the Son of God? And yet through the grace and love of God to us what blessing has sprung from it? It is the foundation of all blessing to us. From the beginning of the epistle up till the end of this verse, chap. 
8.30, we have completely set before us the guilt and ruin of the whole world, the intervention of God on our behalf in Christ, the basis of all our blessing laid in the blood of Jesus. The principle upon which that blessing is made ours, the power by which we enjoy it, the answer in us to the grace shown to us, the righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled in us. And the love of our hearts won by the expression of his love to us. We have been predestinated by God to be conformed to the image of his Son, he has called us, justified us, and will most assuredly glorify us. What then, the Apostle asks, are we to say to these things? What is to be the reply of your heart and mind to this marvelous display of grace and love on the part of God? He has been for us when everyone else was against us. He was the only one our natural hearts feared to have to do with, the one whom our guilty consciences clothed with wrath and curse and condemnation, the one of whom every thought was a terror to us, and from whose holy eye we longed to find a hiding place. And yet he was for us all the time, for us in the blood of Jesus, where his love was declared, for us in the resurrection, where his power was declared, and for us in the gift of the Holy Spirit, by whom we are led into every blessing that is made ours in Christ. Therefore we may boldly make our boast in God and fling out the challenge in the face of every foe, if God be for us, who can be against us? What finite creature, however evil disposed toward the people of God, would pit its puny might against the omnipotent? Utter and everlasting defeat could be the only result to the creature that would attempt such an insane and rash adventure. If God spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all that he might fulfill his counsels with regard to us. There can be no question as to the putting forth of the whole power of God that he may have the objects of his love. With that blessed Son of his he is certain to give us all things. All things have been given to Jesus, and we are to inherit all things along with him. Already, indeed, all things are ours, but we have not as yet entered into possession. We will take hold of everything along with Christ in the day of his glory. We have the earnest of this in the gift of the Spirit, by him we are sealed until the day of redemption. But this does not finish the boasting of the Apostle. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Satan may do his best to accuse the people of God, and as to their practical lives there may seem to be good ground for their condemnation. But the blood of Jesus is a perfect answer to everything. God has passed over nothing that they or have done, but has dealt with it in the cross, as we have learned in the earlier portion of this epistle, so that righteously no charge can be laid against us. Besides, it is God who justifies. The condemnation of man or of the devil is of little importance. The only one whose condemnation we have need to fear is God's, and he has taken up the attitude of justifier towards us, and not only that, but he has actually justified us in the power of the blood and in Christ risen, so that we may well demand, who is he that condemns? And as to Christ, to whom all judgment is committed, it is he who has died for us, thus expressing his own personal love to us, and not only has he died for us, but he is risen again. We have not lost him in his sacrifice for us, as is the case when a mortal man dies for us. No, we have him in resurrection, and not only that, but he is at the right hand of God, in the place of might and authority, supreme in the universe of God. And there occupies himself in making intercession for us. He is our great high priest appearing in the presence of God for us. We have to cross this world on our way to glory, and we have many a foe to contend against. The Apostle enumerates them, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, but, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. These things will be really good for us, as we saw in chapter 5. Tribulation will work endurance, and we shall be really gainers through every onslaught of the enemy. We shall not only be not overcome, but we shall take much spoil, all will be really for our profit. 
Another thing, it is for his sake we suffer these things, it is because we are following in the path marked out for us by the blessed Son of God, that we have to encounter the opposition of the enemy, whose rage is not really directed against us, but against the Christ whom we seek to follow into the place where he has gone. It is also, next to glory with Christ, the greatest favor God could bestow upon us, to bear a little for him who has done so much for us. Everything that God could bestow upon creatures, in the way of blessing, he has bestowed upon us where Christ is, and on these things we are exhorted to set our minds, they are in heaven, unseen and eternal. But even here on earth he has given us that which is better than the wealth of the whole world. Our inheritance under the sun is the reproach of Christ, and next to glory with him nothing greater could be conferred upon us. Moses esteemed it greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. How wonderful that God should confer such a favor upon poor things like ourselves, picked out of the very gutter of the world. As to give us the high privilege of suffering a little for that Christ who so loved us and whom we have learned to value. And nothing can separate us from his love. He loved us in spite of the judgment that lay upon us, and in his mighty love gave himself to bear that judgment. His love brought him to the lowest point of dishonor, that he might possess us as his own, and all that he bore for us has not dimmed it in the least. In resurrection it lives in his heart in all its almighty power, through all our desert wanderings it accompanies us, nothing that we may meet with on the way can weaken it in the least. And it will be satisfied only when we are in the image of him in whose heart it shall burn for eternal ages, and who in its glorious might, makes intercession for us. Finally the apostle makes known to the Romans the confidence of his own heart as to the love of God. He had shown that there was no reason for the manifestation of that love at the outset, we were ungodly sinners and enemies when it came forth for our deliverance from the power of evil. It had been declared in the death of his own son, nothing had been able to stand in its way, it had triumphed over every opposition, and everything was against it, but it had been victorious. And now nothing could separate us from it. And this love is our everlasting portion. To God be all the glory. May our hearts be ever in the deep and blessed enjoyment of this great love, and may our lips pour forth his praises unceasingly. O oh, mind divine! So must it be. That glory all belongs to God, O oh, love divine that did decree. We should be part through Jesus' blood. O oh, keep us, love divine, near thee, that we our nothingness may know, and ever to thy glory be. Walking in faith while here below.